Chapter 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 9 of The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Read by Nicodemus. Clifford and Phoebe. Truly was there something high, generous, and noble in the native composition of our poor old Hepzibah, or else, and it was quite as probably the case, she had been enriched by poverty, developed by sorrow, elevated by the strong and solitary affection of her life, and thus endowed with heroism, which never could have characterized her in what are called happier circumstances. Through dreary years Hepzibah had looked forward, for the most part despairingly, never with any confidence of hope, but always with the feeling that it was her brightest possibility, to the very position in which she now found herself. In her own behalf she had asked nothing of Providence but the opportunity of devoting herself to this brother, whom she had so loved, so admired for what he was or might have been, and to whom she had kept her faith alone of all the world, wholly, unfalteringly, at every instant, and throughout life. And here, in his late decline, the lost one had come back out of his long and strange misfortune, and was thrown on her sympathy, as it seemed, not merely for the bread of his physical existence, but for everything that should keep him morally alive. She had responded to the call. She had come forward, our poor gaunt Hepzibah, in her rusty silks, with her rigid joints, and the sad perversity of her scowl, ready to do her utmost, and with affection enough, if that were all, to do a hundred times as much. There could be few more tearful sights, and heaven forgive us if a smile insist on mingling with our conception of it, few sights with truer pathos in them, than Hepzibah presented on that first afternoon. How patiently did she endeavor to wrap Clifford up in her great warm love, and make it all the world to him, so that he should retain no torturing sense of the coldness and dreariness without. Her little efforts to amuse him, how pitiful, yet magnanimous they were. Remembering his early love of poetry and fiction, she unlocked a bookcase, and took down several books that had been excellent reading in their day. There was a volume of Pope, with the rape of the lock in it, and another of the Tatler, and an odd one of Dryden's miscellanies, all with tarnished gilding on their covers, and thoughts of tarnished brilliancy inside. They had no success with Clifford. These and all such writers of society, whose new works glow like the rich texture of a just-woven carpet, must be content to relinquish their charm, for every reader, after an age or two, and could hardly be supposed to retain any portion of it for a mind that had utterly lost its estimate of modes and manners. Hepzibah then took up Rasselas, and began to read of the Happy Valley, with the vague idea that some secret of a contented life had there been elaborated which might at least serve Clifford and herself for this one day. But the happy valley had a cloud over it. Hepzibah troubled her auditor, moreover, by innumerable sins of emphasis, which she seemed to defect without any reference to the meaning. Nor, in fact, did he appear to take much note of the sense of what she read, but evidently felt the tedium of the lecture, without harvesting its profit. His sister's voice, too, naturally harsh, had in the cause of her sorrowful lifetime 
contracted a kind of croak, which, when it once gets into the human throat, is as ineradicable as sin. In both sexes, occasionally, this lifelong croak, accompanying each word of joy or sorrow, is one of the symptoms of a settled melancholy, and wherever it occurs, the whole history of misfortune is conveyed in its slightest accent. The effect is as if the voice had been dyed black, or if we must use a more moderate simile, this miserable croak running through all the variations of the voice is like a black silken thread on which the crystal beads of speech are strung, and whence they take their hue. Such voices have put on mourning for dead hopes, and they ought to die and be buried along with them. Discerning that Clifford was not gladdened by her efforts, Hepzibah searched about the house for the means of more exhilarating pastime. At one time her eyes chanced to rest on Alice Pynchon's harpsichord. It was a moment of great peril, for despite the traditionary awe that had gathered over this instrument of music, and the dirges which spiritual fingers were said to play on it, the devoted sister had solemn thoughts of thrumming on its chords for Clifford's benefit, and accompanying the performance with her voice. Poor Clifford! Poor Hepzibah! Poor Harpsichord! All three would have been miserable together. By some good agency, possibly by the unrecognized interposition of the long-buried Alice herself, the threatening calamity was averted. But the worst of all, the hardest stroke of fate for Hepzibah to endure, and perhaps for Clifford too, was his invincible distaste for her appearance. Her features, never the most agreeable, and now harsh with age and grief, and resentment against the world for his sake, her dress and especially her turban, the queer and quaint manners which had unconsciously grown upon her in solitude, such being the poor gentlewoman's outward characteristics, it is no great marvel, although the mournfulest of pities, that the instinctive lover of the beautiful was fain to turn away his eyes. There was no help for it. It would be the latest impulse to die within him. In his last extremity, the expiring breath stealing faintly through Clifford's lips, he would doubtly press Hepzibah's hand in fervent recognition of all her lavished love and close his eyes, but not so much to die as to be constrained to look no longer on her face. Poor Hepzibah! She took counsel with herself what might be done, and thought of putting ribbons in her turban, but by the instant rush of several guardian angels was withheld from an experiment that could hardly have proved less than fatal to the beloved object of her anxiety. To be brief, besides Hepzibah's disadvantages of person, there was an uncouthness pervading all her deeds, a clumsy something that could but ill adapt itself for use, and not at all for ornament. She was a grief to Clifford, and she knew it. In this extremity, the antiquated virgin turned to Phoebe. No groveling jealousy was in her heart. Had it pleased heaven to crown the heroic fidelity of her life by making her personally the medium of Clifford's happiness, it would have rewarded her for all the past, by a joy with no bright tints, indeed, but deep and true, and worth a thousand gayer ecstasies. This could not be. She therefore turned to Phoebe, and resigned the task into the young girl's hands. The latter took it up cheerfully, as she did everything, but with no sense of a mission to perform, and succeeding all the better for that same simplicity. By the involuntary effect of a genial temperament, 
Phoebe soon grew to be absolutely essential to the daily comfort, if not the daily life, of her two forlorn companions. The grime and sordidness of the house of the Seven Gables seemed to have vanished since her appearance there. The gnawing tooth of the dry rot was stayed among the old timbers of its skeleton frame. The dust had ceased to settle down so densely from the antique ceilings upon the floors and furniture of the rooms below. Or at any rate, there was a little housewife as light-footed as the breeze that sweeps a garden walk, gliding hither and thither to brush it all away. The shadows of gloomy events that haunted the else lonely and desolate apartments, the heavy, breathless scent which death had left in more than one of the bedchambers ever since his visits of long ago, these were less powerful than the purifying influence scattered throughout the atmosphere of the household by the presence of one youthful, fresh, and thoroughly wholesome heart. There was no morbidness in Phoebe. If there had been, the old pension house was the very locality to ripen it into incurable disease. But now her spirit resembled, in its potency, a minute quantity of otter of rose in one of Hepzibah's huge, iron-bound trunks, diffusing its fragrance through the various articles of linen and wrought lace, kerchiefs, caps, stockings, folded dresses, gloves, and whatever else was treasured there. As every article in the great trunk was the sweeter for the rose scent, so did all the thoughts and emotions of Hepzibah and Clifford, somber as they might seem, acquire a subtle attribute of happiness from Phoebe's intermixture with them. Her activity of body, intellect, and heart impelled her continually to perform the ordinary little toils that offered themselves around her, and to think the thought proper for the moment, and to sympathize now with the twittering gaiety of the robins in the pear-tree, and now to such a depth as she could with Hepzibah's dark anxiety, or the vague moan of her brother. This facile adaptation was at once the symptom of perfect health and its best preservative. A nature like Phoebe's has invariably its due influence, but is seldom regarded with due honor. Its spiritual force, however, may be partially estimated by the fact of her having found a place for herself, amid circumstances so stern as those which surrounded the mistress of the house, and also by the effect which she produced on a character of so much more mass than her own. For the gaunt, bony frame and limbs of Hepzibah, as compared with the tiny lithesomeness of Phoebe's figure, were perhaps in some fit proportion with the moral weight and substance, respectively, of the woman and the girl. To the guest, to Hepzibah's brother, or Cousin Clifford, as Phoebe now began to call him, she was especially necessary. Not that he could ever be said to converse with her, or often manifest in any other very definite mode, his sense of a charm in her society. But if she were a long while absent, he became pettish and nervously restless, pacing the room to and fro with the uncertainty that characterized all his movements, or else would sit broodingly in his great chair, resting his head on his hands and evincing life only by an electric sparkle of ill-humor whenever Hepzibah endeavored to arouse him. Phoebe's presence, and the contiguity of her fresh life to his blighted one, was usually all that he required. Indeed, such was the native gush and play of her spirit, that she was seldom perfectly quiet and undemonstrative, any more than a fountain ever ceases to dimple and warble with its flow. She possessed the gift of song, and that too so naturally 
that you would as little think of inquiring whence she had caught it, or what master had taught her, as of asking the same questions about a bird, in whose small strain of music we recognize the voice of the Creator as distinctly as in the loudest accents of his thunder. So long as Phoebe sang, she might stray at her own will about the house. Clifford was content whether the sweet, airy homeliness of her tones came down from the upper chambers, or along the passageway from the shop, or was sprinkled through the foliage of the pear-tree inward from the garden with the twinkling sunbeams. He would sit quietly with a gentle pleasure gleaming over his face, brighter now, and now a little dimmer, as the song happened to float near him, or was more remotely heard. It pleased him best, however, when she sat on a low footstool at his knee. It is perhaps remarkable, considering her temperament, that Phoebe oftener chose a strain of pathos than of gaiety. But the young and happy are not ill-pleased to temper their life with a transparent shadow. The deepest pathos of Phoebe's voice and song, moreover, came sifted through the golden texture of a cheery spirit, and was somehow so interfused with the quality thence acquired, that one's heart felt all the lighter for having wept at it. Broad mirth and the sacred presence of dark misfortune would have jarred harshly and irreverently with the solemn symphony that rolled its undertone through Hepzibah's and her brother's life. Therefore it was well that Phoebe so often chose sad themes, and not amiss that they ceased to be so sad while she was singing them. Becoming habituated to her companionship, Clifford readily showed how capable of imbibing pleasant tints and gleams of cheerful light from all quarters his nature must originally have been. He grew youthful while she sat by him. A beauty, not precisely real, even in its utmost manifestation, and which a painter would have watched long to seize and fix upon his canvas, and after all in vain, beauty, nevertheless, that was not a mere dream, would sometimes play upon and illuminate his face. It did more than to illuminate, it transfigured him with an expression that could only be interpreted as the glow of an exquisite and happy spirit. That grey hair and those furrows, with their record of infinite sorrow so deeply written across his brow and so compressed as with a futile effort to crowd in all the tale, that the whole inscription was made illegible, these for the moment vanished. An eye at once tender and acute might have beheld in the man some shadow of what he was meant to be. Anon, as age came stealing, like a sad twilight, back over his figure, you would have felt tempted to hold an argument with destiny, and affirm that either this being should not have been made mortal, or mortal existence should have been tempered to his qualities. There seemed no necessity for his having drawn breath at all. The world never wanted him, but as he had breathed, it ought always to have been the balmiest of summer air. The same perplexity will invariably haunt us with regard to natures that tend to feed excessively upon the beautiful, let their earthly fate be as lenient as it may. Phoebe, it is probable, had but a very imperfect comprehension of the character over which she had thrown so beneficent a spell. Nor was it necessary. The fire upon the hearth can gladden a whole semicircle of faces round about it, but need not know the individuality of one among them all. Indeed, there was something too fine and delicate in Clifford's traits to be perfectly appreciated by one whose sphere lay so much in the actual as Phoebe's did. For Clifford, however, 
the reality and simplicity and thorough homeliness of the girl's nature were as powerful a charm as any that she possessed. Beauty, it is true, and beauty almost perfect in its own style, was indispensable. Had Phoebe been coarse in feature, shaped clumsily, of a harsh voice, and uncouthly mannered, she might have been rich with all good gifts beneath this unfortunate exterior, and still, so long as she wore the guise of woman, she would have shocked Clifford and depressed him by her lack of beauty. But nothing more beautiful, nothing prettier at least, was ever made than Phoebe. And therefore, to this man, whose whole poor and impalpable enjoyment of existence heretofore, and until both his heart and fancy died within him, had been a dream, whose images of women had more and more lost their warmth and substance, and been frozen, like the pictures of secluded artists, into the chillest ideality, to him this little figure of the cheeriest household life was just what he required to bring him back into the breathing world. Persons who have wandered or been expelled out of the common track of things, even were it for a better system, desire nothing so much as to be led back. They shiver in their loneliness, be it on a mountain top or in a dungeon. Now Phoebe's presence made a home about her, that very sphere which the outcast, the prisoner, the potentate, the wretch beneath mankind, the wretch aside from it, or the wretch above it, instinctively pines after. A home. She was real. Holding her hand, you felt something, a tender something, a substance and a warm one, and so long as you should feel its grasp, soft as it was, you might be certain that your place was good in the whole sympathetic chain of human nature. The world was no longer a delusion. By looking a little further in this direction, we might suggest an explanation of an often suggested mystery. Why are poets so apt to choose their mates, not for any similarity of poetic endowment, but for qualities which might make the happiness of the rudest handicraftsman as well as that of the ideal craftsman of the spirit? Because probably, at his highest elevation, the poet needs no human intercourse, but he finds it dreary to descend and be a stranger. There was something very beautiful in the relation that grew up between this pair, so closely and constantly linked together, yet with such a waste of gloomy and mysterious years from his birth to hers. On Clifford's part, it was the feeling of a man naturally endowed with the liveliest sensibility to feminine influence, but who had never quaffed the cup of passionate love, and knew that it was now too late. He knew it with the instinctive delicacy that had survived his intellectual decay. Thus, his sentiment for Phoebe, without being paternal, was not less chaste than if she had been his daughter. He was a man, it is true, and recognized her as a woman. She was his only representative of womankind. He took unfailing note of every charm that appertained to her sex, and saw the ripeness of her lips and the virginal development of her bosom. All her little womanly ways, budding out of her like blossoms on a young fruit tree, had their effect on him, and sometimes caused his very heart to tingle with the keenest thrills of pleasure. At such moments, for the effect was seldom more than momentary, 
the half-torpid man would be full of harmonious life, just as a long silent harp is full of sound when the musician's fingers sweep across it. But after all, it seemed rather a perception or a sympathy than a sentiment belonging to himself as an individual. He read Phoebe as he would a sweet and simple story. He listened to her as if she were a verse of household poetry, which God, in requital of his bleak and dismal lot, had permitted some angel, that most pitied him, to warble through the house. She was not an actual fact for him, but the interpretation of all that he lacked on earth brought warmly home to his conception, so that this mere symbol, or life-like picture, had almost the comfort of reality. But we strive in vain to put the idea into words. No adequate expression of the beauty and profound pathos with which it impresses us is attainable. This being made only for happiness, and heretofore so miserably failing to be happy, his tendencies so hideously thwarted, that some unknown time ago, the delicate spring of his character, never morally or intellectually strong, had given way, and he was now imbecile. This poor, forlorn voyager from the islands of the blest, in a frail bark, on a tempestuous sea, had been flung by the last mountain wave of his shipwreck into a quiet harbor. There, as he lay more than half lifeless on the strand, the fragrance of an earthly rosebud had come to his nostrils, and as odors will, had summoned up reminiscences or visions of all the living and breathing beauty amid which he should have had his home. With his native susceptibility of happy influences, he inhales the slight, ethereal rapture into his soul, and expires. And how did Phoebe regard Clifford? The girl's was not one of those natures which are most attracted by what is strange and exceptional in human character. The path which would best have suited her was the well-worn track of ordinary life. The companions in whom she would most have delighted were such as one encounters at every turn. The mystery which enveloped Clifford, so far as it affected her at all, was an annoyance, rather than the piquant charm which many women might have found in it. Still, her native kindliness was brought strongly into play, not by what was darkly picturesque in his situation, nor so much even by the finer graces of his character, as by the simple appeal of a heart so forlorn as his to one so full of genuine sympathy as hers. She gave him an affectionate regard, because he needed so much love, and seemed to have received so little. With the ready tact, the result of ever-active and wholesome sensibility, she discerned what was good for him, and did it. Whatever was morbid in his mind and experience she ignored, and thereby kept their intercourse healthy by the incautious but as it were heaven-directed freedom of her whole conduct. The sick in mind, and perhaps in body, are rendered more darkly and hopelessly so by the manifold reflection of their disease, mirrored back from all quarters in the deportment of those about them. They are compelled to inhale the poison of their own breath, in infinite repetition. But Phoebe afforded her poor patient a supply of purer air. She impregnated it, too, not with the wildflower scent, for wildness was no trait of hers, but with the perfume of garden roses, pinks, and other blossoms of much sweetness, which nature and man have consented together in making grow from summer to summer, 
and from century to century. Such a flower was Phoebe in her relation with Clifford, and such the delight that he inhaled from her. Yet it must be said, her petals sometimes drooped a little, in consequence of the heavy atmosphere about her. She grew more thoughtful than heretofore. Looking aside at Clifford's face, and seeing the dim, unsatisfactory elegance, and the intellect almost quenched, she would try to inquire what had been his life. Was he always thus? Had this veil been over him from his birth? This veil under which far more of his spirit was hidden than revealed, and through which he so imperfectly discerned the actual world? Or was its grey texture woven of some dark calamity? Phoebe loved no riddles, and would have been glad to escape the perplexity of this one. Nevertheless, there was so far a good result of her meditations on Clifford's character, that, when her involuntary conjecture, together with the tendency of every strange circumstance to tell its own story, had gradually taught her the fact, it had no terrible effect upon her. Let the world have done him what vast wrong it might, she knew Cousin Clifford too well, or fancied so, ever to shudder at the touch of his thin, delicate fingers. Within a few days after the appearance of this remarkable inmate, the routine of life had established itself with a good deal of uniformity in the old house of our narrative. In the morning, very shortly after breakfast, it was Clifford's custom to fall asleep in his chair, nor, unless accidentally disturbed, would he emerge from a dense cloud of slumber or the thinner mists that flitted to and fro until well towards noonday. These hours of drowsy head were the season of the old gentlewoman's attendance on her brother, while Phoebe took charge of the shop, an arrangement which the public speedily understood, and evinced their decided preference of the younger shopwoman by the multiplicity of their calls during her administration of affairs. Dinner over, Hepzibah took her knitting work, a long stocking of grey yarn, for her brother's winter wear, and with a sigh and a scowl of affectionate farewell to Clifford, and a gesture enjoining watchfulness on Phoebe, went to take her seat behind the counter. It was now the young girl's turn to be the nurse, the guardian, the playmate, or whatever is the fitter phrase of the grey-haired man. End of chapter 9 of the House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read by Nicodemus